The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Barbara Carnes, RN. Barbara's an internationally respected speaker, educator, author, and thought leader on the end of life. She's a renowned authority, has been for a long time, explaining the dying process to families, healthcare professionals, and communities. Her books, including Gone From My Sight, are used in hospice environments throughout the country, and I'm pretty sure beyond. Barbara has held both clinical and leadership positions, including staff nurse, clinical supervisor, and executive director of of hospice care in Kansas City, Missouri, as well as Olath Medical Center and Home Health in Olath, Kansas. She received the Heart of Healthcare Award from Kansas University Nursing, the Horizon Award for Education from Nebraska Methodist College, and the the International Humanitarian Woman of the Year 2015 from the World Humanitarian Awards. She travels around the country speaking about end-of-life issues and the dynamics of dying at conferences, state associations, colleges, nursing schools, hospitals, and local hospices, one of which you were here speaking at last week, Barbara. I also want to mention that Barbara has a new film called New Rules for End-of-Life Care. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And yes, I was there last week. And yeah, I, w- I, was, I was wishing I could have gotten over there, but I, I didn't have the time, the time open. Uh, this is Mission lady. Hospice in um, on the peninsula near San Francisco, where uh, a good friend of mine works. Susan. Susan, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think I first saw your book, which is probably best known, Gone from My Sight, when my first wife was living with cancer. That was she died in 1995. So that was what 24? 20, 25 years ago, and it's such a dis- different landscape, um, but at that time, we were, for, uh, I-, I feel lucky that we were sort of intent on getting all this information, and you've been a big part of making information about end-of-life much more available. Well, and the thing about um, end-of-life is that really, it's timeless, you know, the information on what a normal, natural dying process is, uh, that doesn't change. You know, mm-hmm. humans and animals have died naturally the same way forever. How we deal with it medically 
changes all the time. But if you're looking at a normal, natural unfolding of approaching death, that hasn't changed. And, of course, I appreciate those words, normal, natural, because uh, so much in our culture, death is being uh, looked at as sort of an an unnatural thing, as if it shouldn't be happening. Um, so getting the word out there that, in fact, it's just very normal and natural. It reminds me of when I was going to have a, a baby and um, was going to have midwives. They, they would have used this similar language. Well, we, over the years, have medicalized dying. And really, dying is not a medical event. It is a, an emotional, it is a communal, it is a social event. Um, you don't have to have a nurse. Um, you just have to have someone that understands the normal, natural way that a person dies. Can you talk a little bit of that about that for people who maybe haven't? Uh, that's very familiar to me, having been there when, you know, a few different people have died. But uh, can you give people an overall sense what you're talking about there, this natural process? I can. If you think about it, there's really just two ways to die. You either die fast, getting hit by a truck or a heart attack, or you die gradually, and that's getting old and your body wearing out and stopping, or, or disease. And so um, a gradual death has a process to it. If it just happened, it would be fast death. And that process that anyone who's dying a gradual death is going to go through begins two, three, four months before death actually arrives. And mm-hmm. so there are things that, that you can look for that can guide you and tell you if a person has entered the dying process and where they are on this months, weeks, days, or hours before someone dies. What, what's really important is to know that we can't put a number. We can't be so specific as to put a number on how long someone has to live, and yet that's what we tend to do medically. You know, we'll say six months or three weeks or 24 hours. But there's so many variables to the process of dying, that normal, natural process, that you can't be so specific as to put a number. Really, the closest you can get is months, weeks, days, or hours in determining mm-hmm. um, that dying process and the time frame. That, that's interesting because, uh, for instance, the day my mother died, the uh, hospice nurse came to evaluate her, and he said, within about a week, and I said, no, I think sooner, <laughs> and she died that day. Um, but you yeah. can kind of feel it if you're very close to somebody and you've experienced death before, and he asked me why. I told him, you know, but it's it's true that you can't be sure or really know. You just know you're headed in that direction. Well, right. There's, there's, as I said, there's so many dynamics, and one of the dynamics is that of limited control. Um, 
in time that we die. And most people don't even realize that. But, uh, you know, we just people that you're alive or you're dead. But there's the person that's dying has limited control. We can wait until someone comes um, that we really need to interact with before we die. We can protect a loved one and wait till that loved one leaves the room and then Mm -hmm. die. You know, we can't stay here indefinitely, but we have a little bit of control. That's, uh, yes, I have experienced that too. My wife, for instance, uh, was on her way to death very clearly the night before she died, and our daughter started crying, and she the process ended. She, <laughs> she didn't go. Um, and it was another 24 hours. But it was so viscerally clear she was not going to go right then because of the crying. Yep, we've got that control, but most people don't know that. You know, we're, no. also, going, we're also going to die the way we've lived and according to our personality. You know, we don't suddenly go from being ornery to being a saint, we dying, that process intensifies our personality. And, and, you know, we, if we were a doer kind of person, then we're going to orchestrate our dying. But if we've kind of lived an ostrich life and, and denied our challenges, then we will deny this challenge as well. Um, because all dying is, is one more challenge. It's very much a part of living. That's an interesting thing you're saying, because I work a lot with uh, people who have cancer. Uh, I run groups for, for women with cancer in particular, and a lot of people in those groups are transforming very deeply, And so, you know, somewhat according to their personalities, but also making really major changes. So if that happens with people, do you have a sense that that sort of maintains through through the end of their lives? Or do they sort of revert back to maybe how they handled things previous to some big event in life like that? Um, I... I think ultimately we die the way we've lived, Um, but I think that being told we can't be fixed is a gift, and some of us take that gift and really use that gift of time um, wisely and very, very well, and that when they wake up to see that this is a gift that I've been giving, because everybody dies, it's Mm -hmm. just that a fast death you don't know ahead of time. And a gradual death, you know that at some point soon you're going to die. And if you really touch into the gift that's been given you, which is a gift of time, to do and say what you really want to do and say, that can be transforming. Yeah, I've I've trained with an organization that um, uh, kind of developed a protocol for working with end of life, and they only work with people who've been given those words. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's very interesting. I've watched some some film of their time with people, and it is 
true. There are certain things people are grappling with, and they can be grappled with. People can get more prepared, uh, you know, even beyond um, what their particular personalities are, it seems. Mm-hmm. Well, and so often when we're told we can't be fixed, we sit down in our favorite recliner and just basically stop living. And um, I, my, part of my job is to help people understand that this is a gift and how do you want to use it. That's really crucial. And, of course, that refers to one of your books, A Time to Live, Living with a Life-Threatening Illness. And, um, boy, I've, I've seen that many times. People um, sort of have this... Um, I'm going to die tomorrow place and kind of get frozen maybe. And then uh, eventually they don't die tomorrow and they start thinking about what do I want to do with this time uh, mm-hmm. that has meaning to me. And uh, uh, my mom, again, started uh, really grappling with what are what activities are still meaningful given that I'm dying? What what will what will um, make life uh, beautiful in this time. And when when someone's been told that they can't be fixed, if you think about it, they've really had their future taken away, and purpose ties in with our future. And so when we've been told we can't be fixed, oftentimes our sense of purpose, we lose that. And if we can help people find a reason to go on living until they are dead, no matter what the time frame is, then we can help them have a more sacred experience, even I will use that word, because it's very, very special. Absolutely. And also, uh, there's a sense of valuing uh, well-being and pleasure in a different way. Uh, you know, I would I would ask her. Um, she'd say, "Well, should I still go to those political discussions? <laughs> I won't be here to vote." You know, <laughs> and I'd say, "Well, do you enjoy it?" And she'd say, "Oh, it's great. Well, why not go? Why not enjoy it?" You know. So I think there's uh, there's also just that. What is it that really fills my time with with joy and and peace? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, and <laughs> I, I think some people pay too little attention to that earlier. Of course, that's a big question for all of living, but um, it it really does make it quite intense at that moment. Yes. Well, we forget that life is a terminal illness. From the moment that we're born, we begin to die. It's just that someone in an unhealthy body is reminded every day that they're not going to live forever, where you and I and our quote-unquote healthy bodies, we live under the illusion that we have tomorrow. And so when someone's been told they can't be fixed, uh, it, constant, it, it brings to the foreword of what, what is life? What, what am I here for? What am I really doing? Um, and I think that's very important in that we can steer people into those kinds of thoughts. As, as we were talking, um, we don't have, most people don't have any role models on what it's like to die. You know, mm. 
we, we think, we don't know there's fast and gradual. We don't know there's a process. And so when we've been told we can't be fixed, then uh, we think we're going to be alive one minute and dead the next. And yes. as, as time goes on, people will, you know, wake up in the morning and, and the fear of, is today, today the day? Am I going to die today? And that dynamic goes on a lot. And when I think that's happening, I will say to them, if you can ask yourself, am I going to die today? Then you're probably not. Because the day that you die, you won't ask and you won't care. And then that neutralized some of the fear that they're carrying around on what is this going to be like? How is this going to unfold? I think what you're saying is so crucial because with, uh, boy, even looking at the difference in the cancer landscape from 1995 when my wife died and now, um, people are often in a prolonged state of incurable illness, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, they have stage four metastatic cancer and they live 10, 12, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so that question of, am I going to die, becomes really hard to uh, imagine. You know, sort of energizer bunny feeling almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so knowing you don't have to really ask that question because when it's that time, you won't be asking it, you'll know kind of be there, uh, can be really helpful. So when we get back from our break, I'd really like to talk about what brought you to, to hospice work, first of all, in the first place, and doing all this um, educational writing, which has been so valuable to the hospice community uh, everywhere, uh, because there's, you know, it's not a nat- it's not a... Um, an obvious choice since medical training is often about um, getting better. So I really want to hear your story about it. And listeners, you can go to my website and social media while we're on break at uh, Good Grief at Voice America, and there are links there to everything. If you want to find Barbara Carnes and her books and DVD, go to bkbooks.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? 
Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Barbara Carnes, who began her career as a hospice nurse and now does a lot of education through speaking engagements and workshops uh, and through her books and films on end of life, um, on the end of life. And before the break, Barbara, I was, I was mentioning I'd really like to hear how you came to this, this work and decided to write all these Wonderful guides, a time to live, my friend I care, gone from my sight, and the eleventh hour um a pretty a pretty complete um set of guides, I'd say, and very very clear and well thought out. but how did you come to do all that well i started I started in in getting interested in end of life. In the mid '70s, when Elizabeth Kubler, Dr. Elizabeth Kubler Ross, came forward and and told us Americans that we were not treating our the people who were dying in hospitals well, and at the same time, in Europe and England, Cicely Saunders developed a hospice philosophy, which was taking care of people at end of life, not concentrating on quantity, but on the quality of life. And those two things coming together in the 70s at a time when I was on a self-help, spiritual, what is life all about journey, Mm -hmm. those those coming together, um, I, I realized that I'm not really afraid of death. Now, I'm afraid of dying, but I'm not afraid of death. I mm. think being alive is hard work. Being dead is easy. And that when you're dead, you're in a better place. So I thought, I have something to offer people at end of life um, just with my comfort zone that most healthcare professionals don't have. And at that by the late 70s then, the hospice was, was getting established in the United States as a volunteer home care um, organization. So I volunteered uh, for um, Hospice Care of Mid-America in Kansas City, Missouri, and I volunteered 20 hours a week. And what... Wow. what what they didn't know is I would have paid them to go to work for them because mm-hmm. it was kind of my internship, so to speak, into end of life because there wasn't, other than Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, there wasn't workshops, there wasn't books, 
um, there was nothing out there about end of life. And so what I learned was from being at the bedside when people were dying. And at that time, hospice took care of people for months. You know, they'd come on service month, two, three, four, even six months before they died. And I would see them in the months before death every week. And then when it was weeks before death, I'd see them two and three times a week. And then days before death, I saw them every day. And our goal was to be with the person when they were dying. And so I was at the bedside of many, many, many people. So after four months, the hospice brought me on as a staff nurse, and eventually I became um, the supervisor and then the director of that agency, which is kind of bizarre in that I started out as a volunteer and ended up their executive director. But one night... At the, we were, I was on a, on a dying call. It was probably 3 o'clock in the morning. And mom is in the bedroom, um, and I've got the family in the living room. And I am explaining to the family what's happening, what mom's doing, and how close I think death is. And one of the daughters was taking notes. And I thought, oh. This is just terrible. She should not at this time have to be taking notes. Mm -hmm. So that weekend I went home and I sat down and I wrote out what I felt a family needed to know about the dying process. And I printed it and published it and used it with my families, and that was gone from my sight. That's how the blue book, which people referred to it as, came to be. And then um, I would get letters from families saying, Mom, Mom died three weeks ago and gone from my... She did everything in the blue book, and I want three more. And I thought they don't really need three more gone from my sight that explains the dying process, although I have since come to realize that helps them understand that nothing bad was happening, that mom was doing what she was supposed to be doing. But at the time, I thought they need something about grief. They Mm. need to understand the normal, natural grieving process. So I wrote My Friend I Care. And then... Both my mother and stepfather were diagnosed with cancer of the lung. Same year, both diagnosed, and I wanted to help them live. And so I wrote A Time to Live, which is how to live with this life-threatening illness. And then the last book, The Eleventh Hour, is, is relatively new in that, as I said, Early on in hospice, our goal was to be with the family when the patient died so we could support and guide and help them have um, a very sacred experience um, and to neutralize the fear that everyone brings to the bedside. Well, today, hospice, uh, well, I'll reword it, today a person 
generally die, who is dying at home, the family's alone. Hospice, because various reasons, is generally not with that family at the moment of death. So families don't know what to do. And the 11th hour tells the family, you know, here's what you can do. Here's what you can say. It's okay to crawl in bed with your loved one. You know, you can put the cat on the bed. It's all right. So that's where those four came from. What I what I uh, resonate with and 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 uh, appreciate in what you're saying is that sort of sense of um, following your impulses towards uh, you know many people have an impulse towards working with end of life as I did because they experience a very uh, significant loss, but mm-hmm. I've also met several people in the course of this show that just felt drawn to it and then uh, the work itself brought the change, you know, brought the significant um, uh, learning, uh, kind of what you're talking about. You just felt uh, passionately drawn. Uh, That's a big passion to, to volunteer 20 hours a week. And say that you would have paid them. That was a huge, huge uh, draw in you. Well, and it's interesting because when I graduated from nursing school, I figured that I had made a huge mistake, that I should never have been a nurse. I really, even today, in hindsight, I, I should have been a social worker, not a nurse. So I never worked as a nurse. Um, I raised a family after I graduated, and it wasn't until my family was older when I thought, what am I going to do when I grow up, um, that that time frame coincided with the end-of-life um, hospice movement coming to this mm. country. And I believe that my not having medical experience was of great value because I didn't have any preconceived ideas of how to take care of someone at end of life. And like I said, there weren't books. There was nothing out there. And so I was, I was like an open book. I was so open to what I was seeing and then thinking through, okay, what can I do about this? You know, and my focus all along was to neutralize the fear that everyone was experiencing. And I've come to believe that knowledge reduces fear. Mm -hmm. And that's why I run around the country teaching, because everybody dies. Everybody needs the information that I can give them to help them have... um, a better experience, a less fearful experience, um, so that when mom's dying, we can look and see, watch and see what's happening from a knowledge base. We'll know that mom's doing what she's supposed to be doing. Mom's doing a good job. Nothing bad is happening. It's yes. very, very sad when someone we love dies, but it doesn't have to be a bad experience. 
I totally agree with you there. But it's interesting. Uh, I think you've just um, explained something I was I was uh, grappling with in my mind reading the books, which is there's a very uh, there's an underlying very compassionate tone and very clear, straightforward information. And I was, as I was reading, I was thinking, oh, that's the nurse in you, you know, that, that could be so straightforward and um, uh, clear about the process physically. Um, but, you know, which social workers don't always get into too much, honestly. <laughs> You know, some do, some don't. Um, so it seems to me there's that the, that combination in you is kind of evident in the books. Well, uh, in that, I purposely, I they're written in large print. They're about a fifth grade level, no medical words at all. Um, I want people who are under stress, and when can you be more under stress and when someone you care about is dying, um, they don't have the energy um, to figure out medical terms. They don't have the energy to read volumes. You know, these books are, what, 13, 14 pages of large print. They're simple. They're direct. They're gentle. um, But it's, they're, I'm not wasting time or energy on trying to get the information across. I want to do it gently and as succinctly as possible because that's where my readers are at the time they have that book in their hand. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's also just a... Um can be a complex process. For instance, I'm in this field, so I'm pretty educated. My brother's not. But me giving him the information wasn't easy, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> because right. Uh, it's it's emotionally complicated when our mother's dying and I have this information and he doesn't and all of that, you know, both loving children, no problems between us, but it still gets a little bit thorny. So if everybody can have access to a book, which is not one family member telling another, that seems to me to be, to have potential to be incredibly helpful. Yes, I agree. I agree 100%. So, um, you now, do you, do you still, uh, work with, with people in the dying process or do you do more education these days? I am basically education. Now, I have people that I email with that have written me and said, Mom's dying and, you know, I have this question. And, you know, there are people that I email with, um, but I am not at the bedside anymore. Um, And I, I went through, when I went from being a staff nurse to the director I did some soul searching because I didn't really want to give up that bedside, that interaction with families and patients. But then I thought I can reach more people if I'm in in an administrative position where I can train my staff. So where instead of taking 
helping 10 families, I can help, you know, 80 families. And that same principle uh, is what I operate on today by, you know, going to San Francisco and giving five workshops in three days uh, to, you know, what, three, four hundred people. I have touched those lives and they will touch more and that knowledge base is going to grow and grow. And that's what we need so that we can get past this medicalization of dying and understand the normal natural process. That, that brings up something I've, I think a lot about, which is uh, it appears to me, you know, that there has been a real shift. But then I'm never sure if it might not be because I'm just... Uh, more exposed to people who think like I do, you know, because of of doing this show. show. But do you have any perspective on on uh, whether culture is shifting somewhat towards the idea that death is not a medical event in the same way it's been treated for the the last several de- decades? Um, well, I'm kind of in the same position you are because most of my people are dealing, you know, in the end-of-life arena. But um, I think when you look to see that now there are end-of-life doulas, there are um, most hospitals have palliative care units, which... Um, are dealing with end of life as well. So we're doing better. It's been a slow, I think a slow process, Mm. but, you know, Google, we love Google. Google has opened up the world to people asking questions. We used to have physicians um, on pedestals and we accepted everything they say, said, and now we're asking questions. Now we're doing our own research and, and bringing to the physician, you know, do we, what other options do I have? And that is opening up how we're dealing with end of life as well. So I think we're making progress. Slow, but we are making progress. Yes. And, of course, people are... Uh are writing about these issues. For instance, I had Katie Butler on the show. Uh, she wrote Knocking on Heaven's Door. It's about mm-hmm. the medicalization of death and, you know, many other um, being mortal, etc. So there's a little more uh, consciousness of those issues. Yeah. yeah. Uh you know, I notice you've updated most of your material. So when we get back, I want to talk about what what you think has has changed in our ways of talking about end of life and where you think where you'd like really uh the the um the way we handle end of life to go in the future uh while we're on our break listeners you can go look look for me at my website weatheringgrief.com or on the good grief host page you can find barbara carnes and her books and dvds at bkbooks.com be back soon your life your health your network 
You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Barbara Carnes, a hospice nurse and educator who's now uh, doing... Uh, helping patients and profess- professionals learn more and navigate better end of life. And, um, you know, before the break, I mentioned I, I wanted to talk more about the changes in your perspective and, and what you're doing now, where you see it going. Um, because, of course, we're always... Uh, we've always been somewhere, we're somewhere now, and we're headed somewhere. So can you fill us in on, on uh, all that from your corner of the world? Um, in relationship to end of life, um, I think that it is becoming a more comfortable topic in its uncomfortableness, if that makes sense there, um, that it used to be taboo in that we didn't talk about dying or death at all. And we are now much more, as a society, we are much more open. And I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, that, that the Internet has, has opened up and put knowledge at our fingertips so we're not so blinded. Um, as we used to be, and I think that will just continue. I also think that people are more outspoken than they used to be, and mm. so we're more a society where we're starting to, to ask for what we want. And if we can educate the communities in the kind of dying experience that is non-medical that is out there, just for the asking, then more and more people um, will be just doing that, will be asking and getting the support that they need um, in dealing with end of life because every single one of us are going to not just deal with our own death but with someone close to us and many people close to us dying. Absolutely. 
And, you know, that intersection of um, availability of knowledge, uh, which, of course, uh, I've mentioned that you've, you've made a film now that, um, that shares a lot of the information in your books. Um, of course, that's a, a very accessible, you know, when people can't even look at a page, uh, they can watch something. So that must be uh, a real addition to what you have to offer, too. Um, well, and what, what we've done is we, as a society, have become media-oriented. You know, we've got uh, our cell phones and we've got our computers and our televisions. We um, have information almost spoon-fed to us now. We don't have to pick up a book. All we have to do is watch something. And taking care of someone at end of life is different than taking care of someone who's going to get better. But most people don't know that. Mm -hmm. And so I put together this 25-minute DVD that addresses all those areas that people are most afraid of, areas that people don't understand about end of life because they're new rules for taking care of someone who's not going to get better, rules about eating and not eating. The biggest thing people are afraid of is that mom's going to starve to death. And yet part of that normal dying process is to stop eating because we eat to live. It's the gas we put in the car to make the body go. And if the body's preparing to die all by itself, it will stop eating. It'll slowly and gradually over months stop eating. So I explain that in new rules. I explain narcotics. Dying is not painful. Disease causes pain. And there's a lot of diseases that people die from that don't have pain. And so you don't need narcotics. But if your disease process is one where pain is part of it, then there's no reason today for anyone to die in pain because of our our pharmaceutical advancements. You know, there's no reason. But you have to give that pain medicine, that narcotic, um, until the person's last, very last breath because just because you're not responsive. And most people are non-responsive when they die. They don't go from saying something profound to being dead. There's a time frame where they're not responding, but they still have pain because the disease is still there and all the pain medicine did was cover it up. So those are things that I have put on this 25-minute DVD so that a family can sit in their living room and watch this and understand what's normal and what is the, um, the, cor- the, the correct way of taking care of someone at end of life. I think that's so important because I, I have seen that kind of panic in families where uh, even my own, you know, where 
um, eating stops or just diminishes down to almost nothing, a bite here or there. And uh, it's just so against um, what people's expectation of living is that they it takes quite a while to catch on to the fact that that's actually what should be happening. And so having that information up front could be so relieving. Uh, it, oh, when, you're, when your loved one uh, starts refusing food, that's a new stage, you know, kind of exactly. thing. Exactly. Well, and always, always offer food. You know, you always offer food. But don't force them to eat. If they take one bite that, and they don't want any more, that's okay. You know, I'm, uh, I certainly believe we should always offer. Now, if a person has entered the dying process they, uh, and they're not taking in enough calories for maintenance, I don't think you should do a feeding tube because the body's shutting down. And it's, mm. we have to remember that food is what holds us here. You know, that's the anchor. And the body is trying to let go. So, of course, they're not going to eat, um, but offer. And people get confused with that. So I can't stress enough. Always offer. Just don't force. Right. Well, and I'm thinking of the other things that food is. Uh, my mom's really on my mind today for some reason. Um and she, uh, a friend of mine who's Jewish, had made um, matzo ball soup uh, and brought it the day before she died. And she actually asked for it the day she died and had a bowl. But I feel that was love. She was eating mm-hmm. love <laughs> more than soup. More than the food. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, she hadn't been eating at all. But there was something about the nourishment of the love that had been offered that was very comforting to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm saying that to reinforce this idea, offer, but don't insist. She, right. well, she, was, she was very happy to have that, whatever it meant to her, very happy to have it. It, with, with food... Think of all the emotional attachments we have with food. We socialize over food. Our holidays center around food. We eat when we're nervous, and we use food as an expression of love. All of those things are going on when we see someone not eating. You know, it's more than just the nourishment that we're touching into when someone doesn't eat. There's, there's, it's just a whole emotional smorgasbord, pardon the pun, um, yes. <laughs> when, yes. when someone doesn't eat. Um, and yet that is part of the normal, natural way that a person dies. And then I'll take it a step further in saying on, on a continuum of months before death up to weeks before death, a person reaches a point where they're not taking in enough fluids and they get dehydrated. And then families get frightened and say, we don't want mom to be dehydrated. Well, dehydration is a part of the normal, natural way that we die. And our kidneys aren't working right in the days to weeks before death. 
And so if you start giving those IV fluids, then that fluid just stays in the body. They're not peeing it out. And you really got more um, discomfort as a result of giving the IV fluids than you do by letting them be dehydrated. And also with dehydration, the calcium in the bloodstream goes up. And if your calcium goes up high enough, you close your eyes and you don't wake up. Um, and, and that's part of the natural way to die. It's very, very gentle to die from dehydration when you've entered the dying process. And I have to underline that because that's the key word, when right. you've entered the dying process. Yeah, I think I've mentioned this another time on the show that my mom said too that last day. I thought this would be terrible, but it's really not too bad. <laughs> so she said that, that. She wow. said that out loud. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, I mean, what a great gift to me as a person who will die someday. Yes. <laughs> yes. Huh. She she, she was so surprised. Um, she had the great good fortune to have a very low um, uh, uh, registration for pain, but I don't think that was it. I think it just was an okay experience for her. Yeah. Uh, oh, what a and, and what a shock, huh? How many yeah. of us? How many of us think it will? I mean, I've been around enough death to to not be f- afraid even of the dying part. We know how to do it when we have to do it, but. Um, yeah, that that was quite a wonderful thing uh, to hear from her. It was very comforting to know that my, that's what her experience was. My guess is is that if we could talk to people after they made that transition, that 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 they'd say most of them would say that. Oh, most of them would say that. Really as yeah. bad as I thought it was going to be. Right. <laughs> she went sort of. Um, very straightforwardly towards death in a way that not that many people do, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I guess once she knew she was going somewhere, she always went straight on. That was her personality. But, um, you know, I, I, it's nice to have those little uh, touchstones, for sure. Yes. And I hope that can be useful to other people because she was just, you know, intent on sharing that, but, which a lot of people can't at that point. So I hope that can be helpful to others as well. So we're coming up to the end of our day. It went very fast, Barbara. And <laughs> I hope that we'll have a way to intersect again. Maybe you'll, maybe next time you come to mission, I can, um, uh, I can figure out how to get there because I would love to meet you in person. And I want to thank you for being with me today. It's been wonderful. I have enjoyed it very much, and I, I think we've given people some food for thought. Some food for thought, yes. yes. And listeners, you can find Barbara Carnes, RN, and her books and films at bkbooks.com. Next week, I'll welcome Stu Maddox. His excellent film, Gen Silent, explores the particular challenges of aging and end of life for LGBT people. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. 
Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.